Well, welcome back to Pod of the Gaps. Great to have you with us. And uh, we are looking forward to discussing, as ever, a big topic with a blend of theology, apologetics, cultural insight, banter, and normally some bad puns from Andy Bannister, uh, who is joining me, Mike Lotz, and also Aaron Edwards. And we're going to be discussing today the subject of freedom of speech. Um, I feel like I should break into my kind of brave heart at this point and cry, freedom, uh, but I'm the wrong nationality. Uh, so we'll just move swiftly on. Uh, and Andy's also in Scotland, so that would make it more difficult. And so we've just lost our Scottish viewers. All um, two of them. All, all two of them. It's also a podcast as well, Michael, so we don't have viewers as such as, as listeners. But apart from that, that was a brilliant intro. <laughs> I, was, I, was, I thought I was on a flow there. I was, Look at this, uh, yeah, yeah. There you go. That's it. Well, I thought this was our freedom of speech. There you go, yeah. Well, if yes. you were... Our viewers, you would have seen in our kind of pre-podcast chat that uh, Aaron and I were enjoying the delights of sunshine and spring. Mm. Um, Andy was getting a little bit jealous, and he's called us both inside because apparently the audio quality <laughs> of uh, of the Thames Riverside and the Derbyshire countryside isn't quite up for. That's right. Yeah, so Aaron, you were being. The epitome of covetousness, isn't it? Yeah. I think it wasn't the kind of the noisy seagulls that was the problem. It was just the fact that our suntan. Um, for our non-viewers, Andy Bannister has now put on a pair of sunglasses. Um, should we, should we put, I'm going to put, I'm going to put mine on as, as protest. There you go. I've got. Yeah, I'll, get, go. I'll get the Gallagher that's, um, back. That's yeah. I, mean, the, I have to say, the sun is shining uh, here in Scotland. I mean, I get quite offended actually that people, you know, bang on about how how bad the Scottish weather is. I mean, like last year, we had an amazing uh, summer. It was. Um, it was on a Wednesday. I think. <laughs> it's amazing because I used to see you're, you're in Dundee, Andy. So you were in, you're more southerly than I was. I was in Aberdeen for nearly five years, and yeah. we used to go down to the beach, which is you could hit adverts for like Aberdeen, the Silver City by the Sea. There's old tra- National Railway adverts that were kind of in, these pictures of these families spread out with their picnics on the on the sandy beaches, and you'd go down there literally. It would be free. The icy wind from the North Sea would just completely take you. You know, it's a beautiful, sunny, clear sky. And then by the midday, you pay, you pay for the nice sunshine of the morning with Zahar, which everyone said the kind of this weird <laughs> fog. And it felt like this mysterious myth that all oh, Zahar is going to come in. Oh, right. So we're not allowed to have a full day of sunshine. Oh, no, no. You've got to have kind of Dickensian fog <laughs> for the rest punishment. of the day. Yeah. <laughs> How dare you enjoy your morning? Isn't, exactly. isn't Dundee the sunniest place in Scotland? Or am I just thinking, making that no, up? It is. It absolutely yeah. is. That was, uh, that was what we were told. That's why we moved here. Yeah. And the sun, does, the sun does shine, but it sort of doesn't heat up. So <laughs> yeah. it, sort of gl- it glows up there in the sky. Well, I was going to say, the, the two uh, things about being the sunniest city is, you know, it's the sunniest city in Scotland, so it's like all relative, right? Yeah. And um, didn't say anything about the temperature. I mean, I, I studied in Scotland, in Edinburgh, and I discovered that basically in Scotland, you have two choices. You can be warm or you can be wet. Um, yeah. Uh, sorry, you could be, su- you know, it can be dry or you can be wet um, or you can be sunny um, and freezing. Um, so basically, it's just like this kind of, you know, where do you want to go? Get eaten by midges or, or freeze in the heart? <laughs> Um, That's exactly right. We've, that. got a, we've got a lovely picture of my children uh, on my desktop, uh, on the wallpaper for my computer, of playing mm. that comes out on the cycle there. My kids playing outside, I think it was last summer, about July, and they're playing in the garden, and they've got a woolly, they've got woolly hat and mittens and a fleece on. So it's, mm. uh, it's, 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 it's quite special. But it's a beautiful part of the world, just rather cold. Mm. It is, and um, I feel we should probably emphasize that before we lose our before we get cancelled which would be appropriate given the theme of the show yes cancelled and so before we get cancelled so freedom of speech so um i guess while we're talking about this um well i guess a year ago i think just under a year ago there was a letter that was signed by about 150 
fairly significant individuals, including intellectuals like Noam Chomsky, uh, people like uh, J.K. Rowling, basically raising concern that freedom of speech is under threat um, and responding to various um, incidents, we might call it you no know, platforming, people being cancelled, basically this sense in which in Western culture today, um, there are things that you cannot say, at least you can say them, but you won't ever get a platform to say them again. Mm. Um, and and they're concerned by that. And it was interesting to see the reaction to that. Obviously, there were people who were supportive of them. Uh, but also what was interesting to me, at least, was seeing the kind of kickback on that. So it wasn't like, oh, yes, of mm. course, we need to protect freedom of speech. There was a sense of actually well, should we? Um, and it's interesting having worked particularly on university campuses, seeing the kind of shift in culture. You know, when I started out kind of 20 years ago, freedom of speech would have been something that most students would have really championed and felt passionately about. Whereas I'm not sure that is the case today. It's just not one mm. of the things that people, certainly in that bracket, um, would, would care about in the same way. And then I guess another incident that's brought this to light more recently has been um, the cancelling of Richard Dawkins. Mm, um, yes. Do, do, um, Aaron, tell us a bit about what happened recently. Yeah, for well, I mean, he's, he's been in trouble for a while, really, with the woke <laughs> crowd, hasn't he? He was always going to have a limited uh, a limited shelf life. Um, it's, uh, I mean, he obviously, he, it's his comments about uh, transgender ideology mm-hmm. and, like many, who've sort of taken a sort of scientific view, mm-hmm. follow the trust the science, follow the science, which we were told uh, mm-hmm. recently, weren't we, with various things. Um, and he doesn't believe it, um, you know, it's something, it, he believes it as a kind of previous sort of instantiation of how we understood it, which would be this sort of a mental health issue, gender dysphoria, uh, which obviously caused lots of events. And I think they revoked his uh, 1996, uh, was it Humanist of the Year, I think it was, uh, award. So he's no longer a good humanist. I love that awards are just revocable. It's always like it's on loan. Like you never really own anything, do you? It's kind of like it's mortgaged to you until you, if you pay your dues in speech that uh, serves the society for the rest of your life. If you do that, we will let you keep this award. Well, thank you very much. Um, but even then, when you die, someone might find something you wrote and then it'll be cancelled anyway. So even if you serve your time, you know, nothing is guaranteed. <laughs> Nothing's no, guaranteed. Nothing is guaranteed. I have so, to say, so, one of the things that I found really hilarious was um, that Pink News, um, the headline on their article reporting this was um, Richard Dawkins has his greatest um, title um, revoked. And someone commented, um, you know, Professor of Oxford, um, you know, uh, (laughs) you know, world leading biologist. uh, No. uh, What was it? Oh, it was an award that was given by an association in 1996. Um, It's amazing. One of the funny things about it is that he's now, I think, uh, I I, uh, noticed this, that people have, been noticing this since since this happened mm-hmm. that where are the where are the kind of rabid new atheists that Dawkins inspired twenty mm-hmm. years ago you know in, in the light of mm-hmm. um, kind of nine eleven and, and the sort of mm-hmm. religious wars and mm-hmm. then God delusion where are they now they're not the ones causing all the trouble mm-hmm. but you have the same activists and so the people have been noticing actually that almost the new atheists went underground and they've reemerged they've resurrected themselves in the woke activism. It was almost the same thing. It's the same kind of yeah. aggression, but it's completely different mm-hmm. issues that aren't really mm-hmm. compatible. Yeah. And Dawkins yeah. well, is a perfect a, example of that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I think there's a very serious point there, though, uh, though, Aaron, that comes out in a couple of ways. I remember around the time of the new atheism, you know, when it was its heights, and and for folks who are perhaps less familiar with that term because it's not as common mm-hmm. these days as it once was. I mean, it's two, 2006, 2006, that term was was coined, the kind of that movement began. But I remember some of us back then saying that, you know, one of the problems is is that kind of unfettered scepticism is a universal acid and it will deconstruct everything. 
And and I think that's actually playing out. So, you know, back then, of course, Dawkins and, and, and all were, were going for organized religion. But then, of course, the problem is the move, the, the kind of sort of critique and the and particularly the viciousness with which mm. they were doing it hasn't stopped. Mm-hmm. And now it's come back and has eaten them. Mm-hmm. We see the same thing in some areas of, of I think, of wokeness, uh, really, of course, that are to go, you know, people who, who are once like, you know, champion of the kind of sort of you know, some of these progressive movements. I think of Peter Tatchell, mm-hmm. you know, the, 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 perhaps the, you know, the famous as a leading gay rights mm. activist. And then, you know, he got himself into trouble a few a few years ago because there was this domino effect had gone on mm. that Jermaine Greer, the feminist, had said something about transgender. She'd got cancelled. Uh, Dawkins has popped up and defended her. He'd got cancelled. And then Peter Tatchell, you know, the gay rights icon, had come out and defended Dawkins and he'd got cancelled. And it's like, okay, it's no longer... <laughs> it's not really safe uh, anymore, is it? <laughs> Just to go, you know. So, however progressive you think you are, the mm-hmm. tide, the tide mm-hmm. may turn. Mm-hmm. But then I think that perhaps the deeper issue there that is going on is perhaps one of sort mm-hmm. of you know foundations that once there are no foundations mm-hmm. left, and I think that's one of the pro- the struggles we're facing here, mm-hmm. uh, particularly in Western civilization right now, with what with some of these movements that are going on. Then, in a sense, all bets all bets are off, and nobody is. Mm-hmm. Safe, and I think it's a sobering thought, right? That if I, you know, and I, whether those who are at the the, the forefront of so-called cancel culture are aware of it, it will just be a moment before they're cancelled, mm-hmm. um, and they become the next, the, the next, uh, the next victim mm-hmm. of this. So, yeah, I suppose one question in all this is where this where this stops. Does it ultimately end up eating itself mm-hmm. and deconstructing itself into oblivion? I don't know, but we live in interesting times. But it's interesting on that is that the the Dawkins, in a way, is is going to have more in common with Christians now uh, in the next generation. He was our arch enemy in the previous generation mm. and the next generation he's going to be um, our, so, you know, <clears throat> the kind of person who's going to experience what we may experience as Christians or those Christians who are trying to fight for certain things, which the kind of cancel culture is against. But it's interesting. I mean, Jermaine Greer, I found probably more shocking in a way mm. because she's such, she's such a, you know, a voice of the left. She was a, you know, a real kind of advocate of feminism, um, guardian mm. writer, um, but she again is finds herself out of step, and and I think that. But in a way, a bit like you were saying, Andy, where Dawkins kind of accidentally mm. leads to his own cancelling because of what he institutes with the kind of skepticism. Jermaine mm. Greer could be similar because she's deconstructing gender to the extent um, that she gives helps give birth, not not mm. clearly not single handedly helps give birth to these other kind of um, ideologies which come out and and try to sort of advocate in ways which go beyond reality. Um, and you know that, there's yeah. certainly elements of that within some of the more extreme elements of feminism and transgenders kind of coming out. So, so the feminists complain. It's not. It's not like well, yeah, you, you can you can complain because it's a bit outrageous for them to say gender kind of is you know uh, changeable. But at the same time, you know you you've helped cause this. Mm. Yeah, Before I think we, so. And I think what's I think we just want one sort of final thought of that. Sorry, Michael, is that I think um, I think you're absolutely right. So, so you know, feminism in a sense has been eaten up by the monster and un- unleashed. I think the next place we're going to see that, and I think it's been very fascinating to see how you know the next the, the next wave of cancel culture plays itself out is going to be as as transgender and race actually crash into mm. one another. Because in one sense, you know, if if gender is just a construct, well, as somebody pointed out, there is a lot more you know hard evidence for for biology than there is for race. Mm-hmm. You know, the genetic markers that make somebody male or female are significantly stronger than those of race. And mm-hmm. if I can simply decide that I'm a different gender because that's my yeah. interior experience and I, and I want to be identified as a, as a male, as a female rather than a male, then, you know, surely there's nothing that then holds you back from saying, well, race supplies the same. And that if you decide, mm-hmm. you know, that actually in, in, interiorly, if that's a word, 
that actually I am not a, a white Caucasian, but I'm something else entirely. Well, why not? And I think there's going to be a massive issue before too long. And my suspicion on the way it's going right now is that the, the sort of transgender stuff is actually going to end up eating the racial identity. Because I think mm-hmm. if you pitch those two against each other, my money would be on the on, on the transgender side of that debate, uh, winning out over the racial side of that debate. Mm-hmm. And that's going to be pretty messy, I think. Mm. Uh, that was basically the question that Dawkins was trying to ask that got him cancelled, wasn't it? When just kind of posing those, those kind of questions. So I guess what we're saying is kind so we're of... we're in trouble then, basically. <laughs> yeah. we, we are, yeah. We've just been cancelled. It's nice knowing you all. Our five viewers <laughs> will have to find something. Sorry, listeners. I don't know why I keep calling viewers. You've got these aspirations to be a great TV star, I think. I think so, I think so. I think we're, we're looking at each other and we're realising that actually we could do whatever we like right now because... Yeah, Michael's like, actually put on a, put on makeup for this podcast for you, our listeners, just, just so to get in the mood. mood. Yeah. Complete waste yeah, of money yeah. and time, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, my wife did actually me. buy me a new a new shirt today, so Aaron yeah. comes at the time looking smarter than normal. So oh, I said actually you look more dad you look dad like. You look and you're not and you're not a father. You look you kind of, you've got a fatherly wisdom. Well you've not, not got the, the jokes kind of to go with like. that. There you go, yeah. The, the jokes and the grey hair, yeah. yeah um anyway, but but going back to Dawkins and thinking about that, so in one sense we're saying actually Dawkins has laid the foundation of the problem that he's now in, because in attacking the kind of the Christian foundation to the society in which we live and trying to remove that and kind of um, have this kind of secular neutrality, he's now removed the very basis for the things that he's trying to defend, like freedom of speech. So so backtracking then, what? how would we then explain that something like freedom of speech is a fruit of the gospel? What is it about the gospel that leads to this being important? And why is it when we get rid of the gospel, do we lose freedom of speech? Well, can I just ask a question, answer a question behind that and then perhaps yeah. Aaron answer that one? I think there's something we touched on earlier but didn't fully mm. answer, which is, of course, why freedom of speech is important. Mm. There was a time, as you say, when students would have stood up for it and it would have been mm. unquestioned. Now I think people are more kind of nervous about it. It's mm. becoming a forgotten virtue. But one of the things I always want to say to people is freedom of speech is absolutely vital because if we're going to address any issue of injustice, mm. of course, usually what's going on is the person who has genuinely suffered mm. an injustice mm. doesn't have a voice. Yeah. And so there are some very real issues around 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 race and people mm-hmm. who don't have voices. You know, you look at some of the bigger, uh, you know, some of the big issues about human rights abuses on mm-hmm. the in the in the in the world right now, which are increasingly ignored. You look at what's going on in China with uh, the oppression of the Uyghurs. Mm-hmm. Or you look at what's going on in Tibet. You know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, China is doing a remarkably good job at trying to shut down those voices mm-hmm. and not mm-hmm. allow people to tell their stories. Mm-hmm. And if we don't allow, if we don't create an environment in which people can stand up, and in the famous saying, you know, speak truth to power we have a huge huge problem mm. and uh, i think one of the one of the ironies of course is that communities who were once voiceless perhaps mm. such as the the lgb uh community i'm not going to add t on there for for, for reasons that mm. maybe we've already sort of touched on but i guess mm. to an extent mm. um you know that was a community that was historically quite voiceless actually mm. now it's found mm. its voice but of course mm. what's now happened some elements of it are using that voice to shut down others and i think there's a certain mm. irony there actually um, and also a challenge that if you're from a group who traditionally hasn't had a voice, when you find that voice, how do you ensure you don't mm. use that voice to squeeze mm. others out? Mm. Um, but yes, if we don't have freedom of speech, then you, that is going to lead to injustice. And I think uh, actually because... on the, uh, just to jump on that, I know, I know you're already behind Michael's question. I'll jump, I'm jumping I now behind, right. you're behind, behind, the behind the question. We're cancelling your question. in reverse. I like yeah, this. yeah, that's right. That's it. Follow <laughs> the, uh, the, yeah, the gaps. Follow the gaps, that's it. Um, so I, I think, you know, traditionally, um, universities. I'm talking maybe especially in the ancient conception of universities rather than the modern conception. And of course, the ancient conception of universities would have been Christian at its founding. 
um, the kind of defense of truth was important and it was, it was seen as hand in hand to the kind of stuff Andy's talking about in terms of showing kind of love and kindness to those around you um, and, and to those who don't have a voice. I know that doesn't always happen in the, in the ideal ways that people might think today, but I think that was a genuine aspiration. And people often knock the medieval world for various things, but actually they did have a pretty robust approach to learning and the point of learning and how it's supposed to affect society for the good of all. Um, again, we have different views about whether they uh, enacted that uh, appropriately or not. But now, you, you know, higher education is in a real mess over this. It's a, it's a real issue. And, the, and the, the highest, supposedly the highest levels of thinking and critical engagement, it's not really critical it's it's entirely governed by the left and it's um you know people like myself in higher education have always been a weirdo in the room and if i'm at a conference i'm the weirdo who will ask a question who will um often have to veil even the kind of preamble to the question because i know that immediately ah oh, a bigot <laughs> ah mm. someone who's an idiot who only wants to re like refer to scripture and doesn't read anything else and so there's this. There's almost a, a complete loss of what. What does it mean to do critical engagement? This was a a key part of the modern university uh, project when it emerged, and we've kind of lost sight of it really. So I try where I can, um, as a kind of leader of a postgraduate course here here at Cliff, to um, uh, ensure that critical engagement really means critical engagement. It doesn't just mean having a go at <laughs> um, established views which are on a certain political or theological spectrum. It means critical engagement will mean critiquing the left as well as much as that will, will be challenging to people so some of people are kind of surprised by that they kind of think oh are we allowed to read this book <laughs> it's like yes yes you are allowed you're supposed to you need to engage why is this person wrong tell me don't just assume they're wrong because you read it on twitter tell me why they're wrong give me an argument give me kind of reason for why this is a problem because otherwise you think if people continue <clears throat> to kind of tiptoe around what they think is true because they're worried about what someone will say that mm. ultimately it's going back to what you're saying andy that's not going to be good for people there will eventually be other people who don't have a voice you know ironically mm. enough richard dawkins may, may lose his voice <laughs> uh we'll have to go and defend poor poor richard um mm. because that's what happens isn't it when you when you live by lies to use the kind of opposite of the solzhenitsyn mm. phrase um that's what happens it, it lies end in bad things they don't just sort of peter out go oh, that's a shame i'm living by i'm just gonna, i'm going along with the lie but it doesn't have any implications it doesn't really affect mm -hmm. it and well it does actually it, it just might take a decade to come out but it will come out so um to go back to the question before we go behind <laughs> well, there it was a question further, back there wasn't there there, there was a question <laughs> back there that we're now so far behind that we've probably forgotten what the question was <laughs> let me let me rephrase the question i guess let me play devil's advocate and be a skeptic it says okay you're saying that freedom of speech is a fruit of Christianity and Christianity's influence on the world, particularly on, on kind of Western culture, the university and so on. But isn't it actually a result of something like the Enlightenment? You know, Stephen Pinker might say that Enlightenment now, you know, it's, it's you know, um, it wasn't Christianity that gave us this. It was when we woke up to kind of rationalism and everything else. So, so how would you defend or argue that actually yeah. it really is Christianity that has given us this idea? Well, I mean, I think, I think a couple of things. The first thing I've always thought that uh, you know, sort of Stephen Pinker, for all of his Im impressive hair, always wants impressive hair. Is that something? That yeah. um, you know, the, the last the last word of his book title, Enlightenment Now, is actually the wrong way around. If you reverse the letters, you're closer to the truth. Enlightenment one, because actually the, those those so called Enlightenment values of you know freedom of speech and inquiry and uh, freedom of belief and all of those things, scientific method, they didn't just drop. Out of you know, out of thin air. Sometimes I think folks like Pinker sort of think they emerged in a vacuum, whereas they did. They were they were hard won, 
um, actually. They were hard won because the foundations had to be constructed. Mm. And then they're also, uh, they were hard won because there was, you know, there were lots of competing voices back then who didn't want uh, those things, not not necessarily religious ones, mm. actually often powerful political elites. Um, and it's often, it's interesting, I think it's often those who have power uh, who don't want the truth mm. to come out. Mm. Um, you know, Friedrich Nietzsche, the famous atheist of the 19th century, was not far wrong when he said, you know, but once you remove God, you have the will yeah. the will to power. And the other mistake we make in terms of thinking of, of, of enlightenment values being one is the danger is you win things and you sit back on your on your haunches and you think everything is okay. And it isn't because before you know it, mm. suddenly the next battle's coming over the horizon. Just like mm. after World War Two, mm. you know, we thought we defeated the Nazis, so there was going to be peace. Well, we neglected mm. the fact that then the monster of communism was arising. We had mm. the Cold War and all that that brought. Mm. And I think too long the West has sat on its sort of laurels, rested on its laurels, and gone great. We've got all these amazing things from the Enlightenment. We don't need mm. to ask what the foundations are. We don't need to defend yeah. them. And suddenly we turn around and go, we're in, we're in real trouble. Mm. And I think Pinker's going to find himself counsel for too much longer, quite frankly. Um, <laughs> But I think in terms of those those values, I think that the, the big one to, to focus on on the topic of t- today, um, in terms of sort of freedom of speech and freedom of inquiry, of course, the big question underlying it all is why? Why does freedom of speech matter? You know, if we live in an atheistic universe, if there is no God, if we're just atoms and particles in motion, if all that matters is that we survive and reproduce and pass our DNA on to the next generation, who gives a flying monkey's uh, if somebody does or does not have the freedom to express their opinion. Your opinion doesn't matter. It matters not one iota. Not in the slightest does it matter. You know, evolution yeah. doesn't care, biology doesn't care, physics doesn't care. Your particles are just, you know, dancing in the void. Yeah. Nothing ultimately matters. Only if truth matters it really mm. really matters. If pursuing the truth is a virtue, mm. can you then begin constructing arguments that says that the free inquiry matters. And only if human beings have value and dignity and thus I, you know, I devalue somebody. If, if Aaron has an opinion and we say, no, mate, you can't share your opinion, go away, mm-hmm. you don't matter. Mm-hmm. Only if I've actually wronged you in some way, then can I construct an ethic that says telling the truth and giving a voice to those, you know, who I may disagree with actually matters. Mm-hmm. And I think the person who I think expresses this far better than someone like um, Pink will be Tom Holland. We've touched on Tom many times in this, in this uh, podcast or in the past few weeks. You know, Tom's book, Dominion, um and tom like uh like stephen is a secularist um he's not hasn't got a religious faith as far as i'm aware although he's on a journey to one hopefully is that i think you know that book is a wonderful uh articulation of just the difference that the christian faith has made here in the west especially around these things and the last chapter is amazing because he talks about all these things that you know the woke set appreciate um those are actually fundamentally Christian values. Mm. You know, the fact that if you stand up and say, I may look like a man, but really I'm actually a woman in terms of my gender mm. identity. The fact that you expect anybody to care mm. about your interior opinion is only because you're standing on the legacy of Christianity here in the West. Mm. Yeah, mm. that's interesting. He, he goes into the you know, the fact on, in that woke chapter, how impossible the kind of outrage we have in the woke generation would have been in the Greco-Roman world. Because the kind of stuff that we're outraged out, like a Harvey Weinstein type stuff, that was happening en masse and was mm. almost mm. seen as not just, oh, mm. these guys are bad, but we let them get away with it. It's kind of like we don't even need to challenge this. This is just part, this is part of a kind of, mm. it's good to be, take, take, take your power and abuse those who are kind of above, below you because it's part of the kind of mm. created or uh, existing sphere. I think also mm. that I- issue of, of the enlightenment mm. thing, I think this happens all the time. I think, I think atheists and even agnostics who don't know what they really think, but they kind of have still inherited a kind of 
arrogance around the Enlightenment. I think Christians need to be able to challenge this a lot more frequently than they do. The Enlightenment was impossible to imagine without Christianity, for sure. It, mm. it would be possible, impossible because of the Reformation. That was the thing that actually catalyzed uh, the Enlightenment, uh, because you're challenging, you're challenging on the, on the basis of kind of what you can evidence, what you can see, um, which for Luther and Calvin was, what can we see in Scripture? We can see the church has got an ideology, and, and we need to challenge this. And we have mm. a source of authority um, mm. to challenge this with. Um, of course, the Reformation itself came from, uh, was influenced by Renaissance humanism but prior to it. So that, that was kind of significant. But that too was influenced by medieval theology mm. and the culture that was mm. there. So you can't just say the Enlightenment, there's all these clever people who challenge the evil church with all their idiot fairy tales. And now look mm. at us living in the good of it. And, and you know, as you mentioned, Andy, the 20th century, goodness me, if that's the kind of culmination of where Enlightenment thinking ends up leading us, or then post-Enlightenment, post mm. then I don't know. Is that is that a good thing? Is that a good uh, positive thing? So we should claim the good elements of the Enlightenment. There were loads mm. of Christians involved in it as well, um, rather than just merely say, oh, look, look at the hero David Hume, who kind of freed mm. us from the shackles of, of silly religion. I think mm. that's uh, a very tired, uh, worn argument. But it's, it's, it's the kind of argument which is, though it's tired and worn, it still is very influential on lots of mm. ordinary people who don't really know better. Uh, so I think it's an important thing to be aware of. So that's really helpful in terms of engaging someone who may be kind of, like you say, a new atheist like Richard Dawkins, who is committed to the concept of freedom of speech, but has no foundation for it. And we're saying, you know, if, if all we've got is you know, a process of survival by which we have come to be who we are today. Where did truth come out of that? <laughs> like, survival is more important than truth, um, and and truth will always be trumped by that. And you know, and there are a number of atheist thinkers who are willing to actually acknowledge where that would kind of logically take you. But let's turn it round because you know, actually working on university campuses today. I'm now meeting students who just say, well, I don't really care about freedom of speech. Mm. So, so their issue isn't so much I care about freedom of speech and I need to know where it's come from. It's like, why is freedom of speech such a big deal anyway? Mm. Like, why, why do we need to bother about this? So, I mean, we touched on a, a little bit earlier in talking about justice, but maybe we're fleshing that out a bit more. Like, how would we give an apologetic for why this is really important? Mm. And not just kind of hanging on to a kind of cultural yeah. thing of the past. Mm. Well, I think one of the things I would... I would say straight away, uh, you know, Michael, one of the things I think that is a very good sign that someone is talking nonsense um, is when the very statement itself deconstructs. So I think, the th I mean, I do, I, I do enjoy being politely iconoclastic. So I think if somebody said that to me, I've never had someone say that to me directly. I've had versions of that. Um, I think I'd look the person in the eye and go, well, that's interesting. I don't care what you think. Because I want them to go, well, what do you mean? And to go, ah, right, you're implying that I should care about your view. In other words, you think you have freedom of speech and you want to express your view and you want to be want to be heard, which is interesting because you've just said freedom of speech doesn't matter. And I, there is that real sense of soaring off the branch that you're sitting on. And sometimes I think it is worth not just because I want to be clever and philosophical, but again, you know, when a position cuts off the branch you're sitting on, if someone says, you know, I don't believe there's such a thing as reason, or I don't think consciousness exists, Daniel Dennett, you know, almost went mm. as far as that yeah, in his yeah. book, Consciousness yeah. Explained. Okay, well, that's all very well then. Then who am I talking to? Yeah. Um, mm. And it's interesting that you almost can't defend, you can't attack freedom of speech without itself using using freedom of speech. Mm. Then the other thing I think mm. I would do, particularly mm. when I've heard that in the, in the West, which is where I tend to hear it, is I think, and I have used this in in in, in discussions sometimes with with sort of woke sort of student types, is to turn around and go, well, 
it's okay for you to say that because you're a rich, privileged Westerner. <laughs> and to go, and even they go, well, I'm, well, I'm not, I'm a, I'm a student. To go, no, you're rich and privileged because here you are at Oxford University. And yes, life may be tough and you may not be able to afford more than one Starbucks a day, but you're, you know, one of the, you're an elite institution. You've got a roof over your head. You've got three square meals. You've got the lights come on when you press the switch. You are privileged in world standards. But mm-hmm. there are many, many people in the world who are far less privileged than you who are crying out to have their voices heard. Think of the million Uyghurs in those, let's name, name the elephant, those concentration mm-hmm. camps that China is running in that part of the, their country, mm-hmm. of going, who don't get their voices heard, uh, who don't have the ability to tell their injustices. Mm-hmm. I think of Tibet. You know, I've been to Tibet. We went there a few years ago. My wife and I had the privilege of, of going there and just absolutely heartbreaking mm-hmm. to see what's happened uh, to that, that country as basically China has done its utter best, destroy Tibetan culture hmm. and civilization where you can even be arrested for merely possessing a photograph of the Dalai Lama and so on and go so don't come on to me I would say to a western student coming all you know sort of smug and going or oh, freedom of speech doesn't matter it matters hmm. tremendously hmm. and the only reason you don't think it matters is because you have it yes. yeah, that's absolutely. hugely hmm. uh, important hmm. to say now as Christians of course we want to do that lovingly and, and graciously hmm. um, but sometimes I think as Christians we back away from hmm. being firm um, you know, we've lost that sort of slightly, that slight virtue of what used to be called muscular Christianity. Yeah. Maybe we need to rediscover it and say, look, with all due respect, um, you are talking nonsense <laughs> and you're only able to say these things because of where you live. And it's interesting that, that on the back of that, just, and I'll come back to Michael's thing again, um, in terms of trying to think of a, sort of an apologetic um, for why we should be sticking up for this. Um, <clears throat> on, the to- on the topic of nonsense, um, Jean-Paul Sartre, or Sartre, if you want to say it properly, which I won't. Um, oh, you're so posh. Look at that. <laughs> I know. Uh, he had this concept called radical freedom. He was one of the kind of key existentialist, kind of proto-postmodernist uh, thinkers that influenced a huge deal of how uh, contemporary culture thinks today without people kind of even reading him. And this concept of radical freedom was no one gets to sort of tell me who I'm supposed to be or what I'm supposed to be like. Whether And, and I don't know, he didn't flesh it all out, but it, it did, you know, ultimately it could be things like male or female and things like that. They weren't realising the implications in the kind of 30s and 40s and 50s, but it, it was something that he was talking about, experimenting with. I'm radically free. No one can tell me anything. There's no kind of metaphysics above me to tell me what virtue even is. Andy mentioned a virtue. There are no virtues. There's just individuals existing. And my existence and reflecting on my existence and expressing my existence is the most important thing. You think, wow, there's so many echoes of that today. But what's the difference with Christian response, approaches to freedom? We don't, we don't have the opposite. And go right. It's not radically free. We're radically enslaved. Um, I mean, in a way, you could say that because we're enslaved to Christ. But that's a, a different kind of sense of that mm-hmm. term. Um, but we are enslaved to sin, I would say. And, and so there is a kind of sense you could counter Sartre and go, well. Um, we're not really free because we're we're driven by desires and passions. So when you're in debates with someone and you're often arguing rationally, many of you may have been on. You know, I, jo- I joined. I was saying before, I joined Twitter last week. I'm a complete. Sorry, talk about rational discussion here. You've joined Twitter. Yeah, I know. Sorry. Yeah, what have I done? What have I done? <laughs> Foolish. But you could already. I'm already observing. I'm just kind of learning the rules of the playground, really. Um, you know, that now you guys have added me as uh, followed me. I'm sure my follow account will go through the roof now. Um, but it's funny observing some of the interactions. Obviously, it's, it's not like I'm surprised because I've seen this sort of thing before. But it's interesting how the rational really does go out the way, doesn't it? It doesn't really matter. Mm 
what you argue logically with someone. There's a passion. There's something a will that's driving them. And I think some of the kind of frustrate the kind of logic, logical absurdities with them, um, freedom of speech, which we've been discussing, it, they don't care if they're completely contradicting themselves. It doesn't really matter. There's a, there's a bigger, more powerful sort of um, thing which is driving them, which is their sort of desires. And I think um, we need to sort of articulate a response to that and say, well, yeah, that's. That, that's sin. There's an, it's not the only manifestation, but it's a huge manifestation. It's one that affects all of us, uh, but we can be freed from that. And what does freedom mean when you're set free in Christ? Uh, you're free in a completely different sense to the way uh, many of our modern and postmodern thinkers have tried to articulate. We're genuinely free to embrace uh, the truth because we're embracing the way, the truth, and the life, Christ, who is the embodiment of truth. So um, if you're... <laughs> You're kind of defending, you're not just defending a doctrinal position. Come and de- I'm defending my doctrinal mm. statement. You say, I'm defend, I'm kind of living in a relationship with a person who is the truth. So because he is the truth, that changes how I want to uh, articulate, defend, speak truth. And whether that means advocating for the, tr- the truths that are being sort of suppressed um, by others. Um, on behalf of others, advocating for others. That's going to be a huge part of my mission as a Christian who is connected to this one who is the truth uh, as well. I think think that's so helpful because actually one of the dangers is that we go just on the kind of rational, logical argument, let me defend philosophically why this is so important. And that might be helpful, but actually the person who has kind of rejected freedom of speech as an idea of value is probably not going to be so persuaded by that because, as you say, actually it's being driven by desires but I guess something that I was told a number of years ago that I've always found really really helpful is when you're trying to engage with someone who you think is wrong and trying to change their mind they said don't just show them why they're wrong but also help them to understand why they thought they were right when they were wrong in other words what was it that motivated them to want to hold to that position in the first place I think one of the things I've noticed um, as we look at this and this was very evident in terms of the response to JK Rowling is this sense of we want to reject freedom of speech, not because we want to all be illogical, but actually because we want to be compassionate. And the people who are exercising their freedom of speech and defending freedom of speech don't seem to be particularly mm. compassionate, loving people and seem to say a lot of offensive things, which upset a lot of people. Mm. And I don't want to be an offensive, obnoxious person. Mm. Therefore, I need to reject freedom of speech in able to be loving and compassionate. And mm. so actually, like looking at it in its very best light, we want to say, well, actually, that's that's the kind of motivation, which in a sense is good. You know, just as freedom of speech is a fruit of the gospel, we'd also want to say love and compassion are fruits of the gospel. Mm-hmm. You know, wanting to treat other people in that mm-hmm. way, absolutely. Um, but I guess what we've done is we've ended up taking two of the fruits of the gospel, but then put them in competition with each other when they're actually meant to be complementary. I mean, the, mm-hmm. the verse that comes to mind straight away is you know, speaking the truth in love. Mm-hmm. You know, we're not to divorce these two concepts of truth and love as if they're it, war with each other there to go hand in hand because yeah. truth without love is not really um you know it just doesn't work mm. um and so i think that's maybe one of the things you know we've we're, we're taking these fruits of the gospel you know whether you're on the kind of far left progressive or whether you're richard dawkins mm. you're operating and kind of defending something which is the fruit of the gospel but yeah. but because you've lost, lost the gospel you've lost the ability to connect these things together mm. they don't tie yeah. up in the way that you hope it's interesting, just uh, Andy. I'm sure you want to jump in there. Um, I was talking with a friend just today, earlier today, even uh, who's in a kind of difficult situation, trying to navigate how they confront somebody who they think is a, a kind of Christian leader who's um, awry, shall we say? And I, I think one of the issues about when we use the term pastoral in Christian contexts, 
that word I think has been really misused in so many ways. What we tend to use, part we say, I'm going to take a pastoral approach to this issue, <laughs> as opposed to a yeah, doctrinal yeah. one. Yeah. Yes. So, oh, you guys care about the doctrine, the stuff that is true. I'm care about the part. I'm like a stroker of sheep. I kind of just come <laughs> and just gently. Come, well, no, actually, it can't be that because sometimes you do. You know, the end of Ecclesiastes, mm. the kind of uh, mm. it's the goads of mm. um, of the kind of shepherd, which actually help the sheep, and I'll, you mm. pass to the sheep sometimes by. Uh, challenging the sheep and and st- mm. and kind of really being a bit more aggressive in, in how you mm. kind of confront them to stop them running off a cliff or going into a wolf's territory or whatever it is. And so I think we've lost some of that because we tend to we tend to pit them against each other. As you say, truth and love pit against each mm. other. Pastoral mm. approach. Mm. I'm a pastor, not really a kind of one for uh, blasting out the truth. I just think that's so foolish and kind of a, a crazy thing. It's why actually the Ephesians four, um, like the church um, kind of movement I've always been part of, have often taken the Ephesians four pastor and teacher gifts mm. and saying that you can't really separate them we, we have pastor teachers we don't have or shepherd mm. teachers rather than just pastor mm. here and shepherd mm. and teacher there i think yeah. just on think one of the examples sorry. That I, sorry and then i will promise i'll give it back to andy but just to, i think i'm being cancelled i'm being silent yeah yeah come <laughs> on unfortunately you're the host so we can't get rid of you officially but uh you know we'll just talk over you um but just one example of that um that i've sometimes given is to say well you know Take someone who is suffering with anorexia um, and they think and feel that they are fat and they need to stop eating. Okay. You know, is the pastoral approach to say, oh, yeah, like I speak to your feelings. I affirm that you must, you know, follow your feelings. No, no. The pastoral approach is you challenge those feelings with the truth because actually those feelings are out of line with reality and that will be so distracting. That's a very interesting analogy. Mm. Um, Michael, it reminded it reminded me actually. I mean, just literally the last twenty four hours of of this because there's um there's a university in in Canada that I do some 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 teaching for. I can't embarrass uh, the people concerned of the story by mentioning which one. Um, but I've just finished teaching a course there, and there's one particular student who has just messed around, missed every assignment, and so on and and so forth, and is now trying to sort of appeal the fact they failed the course. And to go, we've had an interesting discussion myself and the two other mm. folks involved in teaching it of going, you know what point do you have to stop going, yeah, we'll help you, we'll be generous, recognize you've had some challenging circumstances with helping you or extending things. You know, once you've missed assignments by 42 days, you completely <laughs> haven't read anything. At what point do we have to go look for your own good and learning process? One has to say, well, now there are some structures. Um, because if we just let the compassion way, we sort of tried that, we haven't achieved anything. And I think you're right in bringing those two things together. Mm. The other thing that whole issue reminds me of and I think I remember I was chatting with you folks before we began recording on this. Uh, you know, Edmund, Ed, Edmund Burke, the famous kind of political philosopher, you know, once wrote, well, back in 1791, uh, wrote in a letter to, uh, to a colleague. He said, men are qualified for civil liberty in exact proportion to their disposition to put moral chains upon their own appetites. Society cannot exist unless a controlling power upon will and appetite be placed somewhere and the less of it there is within, the more there must be without. Mm-hmm. And I always read those words. I think, in a sense, he could be describing the 21st century, that we've lost those inner yeah. restraints. You know, in one sense, you know, freedom of speech is, is, is a crucial virtue. I, w- I would defend it. But that doesn't mean we should be using it to go out and be rude and be insulting and, and causing harm mm-hmm. to people. But we shouldn't be legislating and mm-hmm. cancelling people and engaging in Twitter mobs. What we need to be doing is how do we inculcate citizens, men and women, who have the ability and the wisdom and the pastoral sensitivity to go, okay, on this occasion, I could say this, but I'm not going to. 
Mm. Um, and conversely, in this situation, you know, I'm frightened of saying this, but actually, I do need mm. to say mm. to say this. And I mm. think, I think there's a much deeper issue going on going on here that uh, when a society loses its Christian foundations, um, then yeah, I I wonder where we look to, um, you know, in terms of you know how we mm. shape citizens. We've mentioned the university several mm. times. In, uh, in this show and so again there was a time right where the where universities saw their role not just as sort of producing people who could think or not just producing people who were you know skilled practically so they could go into a profession but producing men and women who were citizens yeah. who were rounded individuals able to function in a complex society but I think now you know if you grabbed your average university lecturer and said do you see your job as you know inculcating virtue mm-hmm. and growing character and all these things people would go oh hell no absolutely that's not what we're supposed to be mm-hmm doing um so we've forgotten what character formation looks like and well, maybe the church too but there I, we are. in a way it does really help one it's interesting that the citizenship thing because I, th- I wonder if maybe though they wouldn't say they're trying to inculcate virtue and character in those terms um they probably would say we're trying to prepare people to be citizens of this generation because we've decided there's a we've ripped up the rule book there's a whole new set of values and you have to affirm this in order to be virtuous it's a kind of new kind of virtue isn't it the, the vir- we don't talk about the virtues as mm. language but there are virtues really unspoken ones and loudly capital letter exclamation mark spoken ones um which, which is just you have to sign up for so it's almost like that's where university can become indoctrination camps and many you know there's many parents mm. in in the u.s especially who where the price the kind of cost of tuition is unbelievable you know hundreds of thousands of, of dollars a year who are going, I don't want to pay for my son or daughter to be, I don't want to pay all this money and go into debt uh, or have them go into debt so they can just be indoctrinated with stuff mm-hmm. and not even really learn to think for themselves or, uh, yeah, or indeed to kind of go through the character trials that are kind of necessary for, for mm-hmm. life, which was, yeah. again, a big part of previous ways of, of doing education. So I think it's going to be really interesting to see where higher education goes over the next decade or two, um, whether we'll even, uh, that's obviously Andy and I will have lost our doctorates by then. If Dawkins can lose his humanist award, you know, we won't keep our stuff. Brilliant. Um, there's loads more we could talk about this, but uh, I'm aware that Andy needs to go and uh, cook his family dinner, I think. He tells us I'm about. glad you put dinner after cook family. You pause for a long time. Then Andy has to well, there was something about you having your wood burner and kind of, you know. That's, that's yeah. Cool. Next week's episode, cannibalism. Yeah. Cannibalism, yeah. yes. Uh but, uh, but this, this has been really helpful. Uh, just one reflection for me, I guess, is to say one of the things maybe we need to do as as Christians is we need to embody what this looks like. So, you know, the command of Scripture to speak the truth in love. Mm. Actually, if we can embody what it looks like to challenge those in power with truth, but also to be able to speak truth with, with love and compassion, mm. um, that will be a very, very powerful apologetic. <laughs> and actually, as, as yeah. well, to, to, obviously we're coming to the end, mm. Michael, but I'll tell you the other mm. thing as well, that's brilliant, but also the, re- mm. the the reflection of that mm. is also to be challengeable. Mm. You know, given, you know, we did a, a show a few weeks ago looking at, you know, when Christian leaders fail. Mm. And I think there's been issues in some parts of the church where Christian leaders put themselves beyond challenge. And so as well yeah. as speaking the truth in love, yeah. saying we are also willing to receive the truth. Mm uh in in love and if uh you know if there are errors that we are fault you know mm. to be communicated to people we are very open to people mm. challenging mm. us and i think it's a two-way process for yeah. a speech in that regard as long as it's the yeah. truth though just to, <laughs> we endlessly uh jumping all over your hosting powers sorry michael the uh right. I, I, can, I can mute him but, if you like but it's, it's, it's just the fact that on. you know because someone could listen to what you just said mm. and i think i'm like amening it 
I know that people could listen to things where they go, I need to be challengeable as well, which we absolutely need to be. That should be our kind of baseline, right? But now we're almost being cajoled into being apologetic for things which you don't even really necessarily know if you believe you're, you should be apologetic about. So there's mm-hmm. there's a two-way thing of like being challengeable, but also going, I know it would look good and I would look humble if I said sorry for this thing here, but I don't think it exists. I'm mm. sorry. like, And that's a bit of a, another kind of side to it, isn't it? Sorry. Jump in. No, that's great. Um, Well, that kind of leads me on to say, if you've enjoyed our podcast, we'd love to hear from you. So do get in touch. Um, We have a page on Facebook, which you may or may not have seen already. Um, So do challenge us. If you've disagreed with what we said, if you think we've missed the point completely, if you uh, uh, want to comment on why Andy shouldn't be cooking his children for dinner, um, sorry, (laughs) cooking his children dinner, um, or even suggesting future episodes, seriously, we'd love to hear from you. Um, So uh, do get in touch. Um, But I think uh, that is pretty much all we have time for today. Uh, So thanks for joining us at Pot of the Gaps. And we look forward to not seeing you, uh, but uh, (laughs) being in touch soon. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.